Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts, Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Today, we talk middle management, long besieged and once again under fire. The COVID-19 pandemic makes a mantra of terms like flatter, faster, leaner. But what about when this crisis is finally behind us? What are the risks if middle managers continue to disappear? The workers are asking for better leaders, better leadership, better apprenticeship, better coaching. I think we do this at our peril, where we try to disintermediate the role of a good mid-level leader. Stick around. More coming up. Bill, Brian, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be back. Great to be with you. All right, guys. So here we are. We are nearly a year into COVID, and we are all aching for this pandemic to be over. Today, we're going to talk about rapid changes in the way that we've seen companies organize during this crisis, and specifically changes in the traditional management hierarchy as more companies are pivoting toward this flatter, more distributed, more agile organizational structure. So Brian, let's start with you. Help us understand what is afoot here? Why are leaders making this organizational shift? I think what some leaders are seeing is uh, during the early days of COVID, they were making decisions incredibly quickly because the situation was evolving so uh, rapidly. Decisions on when to close or open sites, even big strategic shifts like opening new digital channels. All of this happened very quickly with a small number of people involved initially, which caused senior leaders to say, hey, we made decisions in two weeks. It used to take two months or two years. Isn't this great? Can't we think about speeding up the organization all the time? Later into the pandemic, some people started to say, well, maybe we can just live with the set of people that were making the emergency decisions. We had a lot of people that weren't in that meeting. Maybe we don't need those people. So maybe what we can do is actually have a flatter, faster, leaner organization. And while that idea is enticing and there are bits of truth across parts of it, I think the idea that we can just eliminate whole swaths of middle management and, you know, emerge on the other side flatter and faster, we might need to pump the brakes on that idea a little bit and think about the nuance of what some of those people do in the most productive sense in regular times. What COVID has presented is similar to what organizations feel after a natural disaster occurs. The point at which you're running to the fire and not running away from the fire, the point at which you feel the need to act quickly, to protect lives, to protect livelihoods, to protect the institution. I think what we're confusing is a response to COVID where there's a natural tendency to massively concentrate power with saying that there's not a benefit to having middle management distributed throughout the organization. So Bill, have you seen among your clients, the ranks of the middle manager decrease? The ranks of middle management have been under a 25, 30 year assault. If you were to roll back the clock to Hammer and Champy, re-engineering the corporation, that triggered a non-stop look at what are we getting from the middle? And can each point of leadership have a wider and larger span? We've basically done that non-stop through a seemingly endless round of cost cutting and an ongoing erosion in confidence that the middle management 
was doing something that was value creating. The, the problem, of course, is that in 1990, a lot of America looked like, you know, Sloan's version of GM, multiple and duplicative uh, BUs, large corporate centers, another large center, but in the BU, and middle management to lower level executive ranks that were there to preside. So there was a lot of low hanging fruit. But after 20 some years, many organizations have hit to the point where actually the connective tissue has begun to fray. What clouds all of this is tools and approaches and techniques, which we tend to at least historically overuse. So we had the rise of artificial intelligence, machine learning, statistical techniques, and when deployed well, they are great decision aids. They allow you to get a much broader range of data, a much bigger set of experiences or facts to distill down and use in decision making. When taken to the extreme, though, we've had people suggesting that you don't need the human to make the decision anymore. I don't think anyone anywhere other than the most ardent supporters of the primacy of machine learning or AI would say that there's not still a role for discretion a role for cognition. And I think we've uh, got a little bit sideways on that, right? Where we start wanting to wire out the role of the human. And I think that's why you still see a push towards, well, hey, do we really need the middle managers? Which brings us to the thing you were just describing around COVID when you said, well, we had a bunch of leaders get together and made decisions really quickly. Well, no kidding, you were in a crisis. The same thing happens after hurricanes, after wildfires, after floods, where a relatively small number of people for the purpose of expedience and protecting lives and livelihoods, have to make decisions really quickly. We've allowed the environment, the cloud, what the actual purpose of a well-performing individual in a well-structured middle management role is. We have to tease it out, not oversimplify it, not overextend the experience we just had from COVID, which is not going to apply all the time. It was an artifact of what we were enduring. That's a really interesting point on AI and data. If decision-making is rendered more data responsive, for example, in a test and learn environment, there could be a perception that managerial input is less critical. I mean, who upskills these frontline workers in an agile structure to feel empowered to make independent decisions and function productively on cross-functional teams? Is that largely an effect of having these test and learn environments or is there training that has happened during COVID to create this kind of functionality on teams that were not functioning this way previous to the pandemic? I think you're hitting on one of the key elements here, which is the role of the manager in training and in people development. It is possible to have a leader of a uh, technical competency, a leader of an area where their role is not to sign off on everything that comes out of that area. But their role is really to define what good looks like, shape what the learning journeys are going to be, shape what the career development is, maybe aggregate feedback at the end of the year, but not be the bottleneck for somebody who is an excellent frontline programmer, developer, um, HR leader, not getting in the way of what those people need to do day in, day out, but really shifting the mindset to, hey, what I'm here to do is to coach, support, lead. And we have seen that when you have leaders, managers over competency areas, or even over the business that spend the majority of their time coaching and leading 
versus paper pushing or being one more step in the hierarchy, we do see real returns. And I think during COVID, people are are starting to realize that extra manager time really matters and makes a difference. One thing to build on that is if we start looking at adjacent thinking or practice, look at performance management. One of the really big impacts is the role of the direct manager in performance management. It's not about the system. It's not about the form. It's about whether or not the direct manager helps the person understand the value of the work and how it fits in, the coaching they get, and or the real-time feedback they get on how it's going. That's delivered by a human. I think we've undervalued it, and we've tried to almost systematize it away with data, with systems, and with tools. The workers aren't asking for that. The workers are asking for better leaders, better leadership, better apprenticeship, better coaching. I think we do this at our peril, where we try to disintermediate the role of a good mid-level leader. We've been down this road before. This is not a novel thing going on right now. It's not about agile. This actually has been tried before. And I'm curious as to Brian's take on this because he serves similar clients. Automotive manufacturing in the United States in the early 90s, they were using autonomous or semi-autonomous teams. They often ran the plants or at least the teams collectively. Teams had a good understanding of the economics of what they were doing. And it required the role of the mid-level manager to be able to be almost the glue between those different agents, between those different constituencies. And that really made it work. When you had leaders rotate out and they didn't start with the same premise, they didn't start with the same commitment to that model, it often fell apart. It wasn't that suddenly autonomous or semi-autonomous teams were a bad idea. It was that suddenly you had a different mid-level manager there who was either not committed to it, not trained in it, or didn't have the social capital to pull it off. You made an interesting point there about middle managers coming in who hadn't been trained or didn't have the capabilities to navigate effectively. How much investment in learning has there been traditionally at the middle management level? It varies. I mean, the vast majority of corporate training goes into onboarding, compliance, and the rollout of new products or systems. Relatively little is spent on leadership development. That said, there are organizations that do recognize the importance of the leader and have training programs for key transition periods where the gap is, is once you're in the role, once you've gone through the transition, are you getting sufficient ongoing coaching and professional development to help you be a better coach and leader? I think that's where we're seeing less funding, less support, and where there's some innovation coming in terms of that more uh, ongoing Uh, learning and development cycle. I think an interesting thing in the COVID period was making everything virtual. There's an interesting opportunity for us to remind people the difference between training and learning. Hmm. And long, long ago, you had point of use training available in the form of little video clips, like someone using a a socket or uh, an impact gun or a welder. And they could pull up just that little video clip right where they were at on the line. It was a job aid, nothing more, nothing less. I think we're missing the opportunity here that just because something can be delivered virtually doesn't mean it's a learning experience as opposed to a piece of training. So training often gets focused just on the job you're doing in the moment, and it's great when you can break it up into bite-sized chunks. Learning, particularly for leaders, is often really experiential, often has a social component, and often it's part a bigger part of the fabric of your organization. At McKinsey, we historically have had signature moments. What happens when you're about nine months in What happens when you're about 18 months to two years in these big sort of events where you go and yes, 
the training and development is important, but the spirit of a cohort, the spirit of camaraderie, the spirit of recommitment to the firm is just as important. Many academy companies have done this before. And what I think COVID has challenged here is how important is it to bring people together? I think we're going to learn over time that this is not a budget exercise around training. You can most certainly deliver training cheaper. It's about an investment in your culture and an investment in the norm setting for how leaders behave and what's expected of them. We probably have to keep that separate. Otherwise, we'll lose out to the budget crunch. It's an interesting point to how do frontline workers actually develop if middle management opportunities dwindle? How does the decimation of the middle management layer affect professional growth and development for frontline workers? A counterintuitive example of a middle manager, somebody that sits exactly midway in the hierarchy from the leader of the overall organization in the front line is a school principal. School principal uh, usually has assistant principals and you know division heads down before they get to the teachers. And then above them, they'll have a regional superintendent and a superintendent above. So a principal is, is almost the definition of a manager in the middle of the hierarchy. Very few people would argue for a wide-scale elimination of school principals. If anything, what we see is that principals play an incredibly important role in engaging with parents and the broader community, but also importantly, leading teachers and ensuring that teachers are uh, developing and delivering the best for the students. And people recognize that good teachers want to work for good principals. And there is something that we can learn from that as an example if we take that to other industries just because you sit somewhere in the hierarchy does not mean that you're not valued and in fact the better you are as a mid-level manager or leader the more impact you have on not just developing good frontline folks but also attracting them in the first place and how do you speaks also to how you assess the leadership pipeline if you don't have that middle management layer serving as a kind of test bed. As Brian was talking, I was thinking about the common denominator in many of these cases is the broad distributed organization where you have physical plants or locations that are various and spread out. And so that person in the actual hierarchy is the senior most person for the location, but relatively middle for the organization overall. That is a great example of you ask these people to be the face of the organization, translate everything down to the local context and provide day in and day out, almost frontline level coaching and guidance. It is a great, great test bed for finding out who your future leaders are. In fact, it's certainly back in the day when we talked about atomizing the P&L, the famous label was popcorn stand. You gave someone an early experience of P&L responsibility and uh, people leadership to see whether they had the competence and the potential to go much higher in the organization. I think as part of the fabric of your leadership pipeline, these roles should be coveted and nurtured and curated and not eliminated. And if you want to eliminate something, eliminate tasks, eliminate tasks that are administrative or bureaucratic or paper mm -hmm. shuffling that don't add value, but keep the role and curate the role to, to help develop your next generation of leaders. Many leaders have made new commitments to diversity in hiring and leadership. Mm -hmm. 
especially in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd and the global protests on racial injustice. And it, it feels like calling middle management positions might also affect development trajectories for racial minorities or for women who tend to be underrepresented at the leadership level. Is that a risk? It's an interesting question because there is a fall off um, as you go up the hierarchy in terms of diversity, both for African-American and Latino, but also for women. Uh, And I think it is a question of if you aren't thoughtful about how you define the middle management roles, are you going to get the pipeline that you need and the diverse pipeline you need going forward? It's not just about the number of roles. It's about what you're doing in them. Are, are these roles administrative middle management roles, in which case they may actually be more career dead ends or roles that we've been talking about that are people leadership roles, that are roles where you're applying uh, judgment or influencing a part of the PL. If you craft the role in the right way, it creates the opportunity for people to thrive. And it also creates the capacity for people in that role to coach and mentor more diverse people below them so that they can come up as well. So maybe that's a good cue for Bill. Um, give us your best quick and dirty on spans and layers. If you're a leader, you're looking across your organization, you've seen a leaning out at the middle. What should you be thinking about? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, we see this a lot, right? Because there's always a fair bit of cost work. Here is my quick and dirty. One, assume that you've done it wrong previously. And I mean that in the best way possible. Normally, when people have gone through spans and layers, they will solve to a number. Oh, I've got to get this one to at least seven. And they started changing the nature of the role by creating an economy of scope. So giving the role that they wanted to keep, or usually the person they wanted to keep, extra tasks or responsibilities, and they bolted things underneath that made no sense. And what you end up with is a Frankenstein. And then the organization structure literally makes no sense and doesn't line up at all with how you make money. So for me, prior to prior to going again and looking at spans and layers, I would say, can you just ground on like the basics of a, a corporate identity? What's your purpose? How are you going to make money? Not just today, but going forward. And how do you want to run the place? Are you an academy company? Are you a fast mover? Are you an executor who's really great at grinding it out? Right? You know, what kind of place are you? And if you can anchor on that, then you can ask yourself, well, how should we organize ourselves to get the work done? When you have that, then you can say, okay, what would be the distribution of leadership, the distribution of responsibility? Remember previously, I talked about places that had atomized or disaggregated P&Ls. If you're an academy company and growing leaders is your business, you will likely push responsibility deeper in the organization which means you'll have roles that are general manager roles. They're often economies of scope roles, and they could even have broader spans because you're collecting a bunch of things underneath them, sort of coherent holes. If you're an execution company, you likely would push down deeper into the organization and really prioritize the importance of the frontline leader who's doing coaching and doing apprenticeship. You may artificially constrain their spans so that they have the time to do it. The point that I'm trying to make is the spans that you assign ought to come out of the role. What's the type of the role, the archetype of the role, how it fits with your culture and what you're asking them to do. It should not be solving for a number. In some places where you're doing no coaching, you might have a span that's 20, 25, because you're not really doing anything else in there to be a fail safe or a relief valve for something going wrong. 
That's probably the exception. I would think in most cases, the person either still does a little bit of work on their own and or they're there to directly grow the next generation of people who would do that, in which case you probably have to look at the span very closely to make sure that you're providing the leadership interaction, apprenticeship, coaching, feedback that you need to actually deliver on that promise. You mentioned purpose there, and that's been a hot topic, obviously, during the pandemic. Many leaders are talking about and revisiting their purpose and the need to serve a broader group of stakeholders than shareholders alone and thinking about well-being and so forth. Delayering at the middle levels of the hierarchy would seem to correlate to diminishing middle class, right? And mirror sort of rising inequality generally and the tendency toward polarization at extremes. What's a leader's stake in helping middle managers find a way forward? The way I would think about it is you look at how the management layer is going to change and how work is going to change and how it gets done over the next 10 years. You're going to see a lot of automation of what are entry-level data entry tasks. These are the areas where people who would be the future um, early managers or mid-tier managers learn the basics of their trade, learn the basics of how to review a particular line in a financial statement or how to find something uh, if you're a lawyer in training or a paralegal, uh, find something in discovery that's interesting and learning what's interesting versus not. As AI takes over those kind of roles, what you actually have is you have a gap now of taking somebody who may be fresh out of school, be it high school, uh, community college or two-year program or out of college, and that training ground doesn't necessarily exist because the leap is to, hey, what is a supervisory role? What is one that requires more judgment, more insight over uh, what some of the automation has done or taken over? And so how do we bridge that gap is when I think about middle management and what's coming up, I think it's like that first level of middle management may actually be now, you know, thinking and working alongside machines, but having that judgment that normally comes with experience. How do you get that? How do you build that? And as a as a leader of the people that I have in my organization now, how do I reorient what they do so as that next generation comes in, I'm positioning them for success because they're not going to have the same five years to come up and learn the trade the hard way to get the experience. They're going to have to come up faster, which just ups the need for uh, training, mentorship, development uh, in that uh, in that mid-layer. And suppose you're a leader and you are in the middle of an agile transformation that may have been accelerated as a result of COVID. How can you go about helping middle managers make the transition to agile? I'd create um, something very simple to have the conversation with them about you know, what our expectations are for the role that they're going to be coming in, in the new agile world. You know, here's the role that you're in and, and here are the responsibilities of the role. Here's who you interact with. Here's what authorities you have and don't have. Here's what you, we expect you to do. And then also talk about, and very specifically, here are the jobs that we want you to do in the next three months. It's about, you know, leading this product or making sure that this team has the set of capabilities ready to go so that they walk out of the conversation with clarity on what it is that you want them to do. And I think that will help make the transition from something that feels nebulous 
to something that feels very tactical and where they have a chance of succeeding. One of them for sure is to help them get really clear on what really matters about their role. But then you should also help them look at all the things they're currently doing. There's going to be a lot of things that aren't jobs to be done. Historical in nature, personal preference in nature, just sort of normative in nature, how we do things around here. You're going to have to stop a lot of that. And that's about creating capacity. Capacity for the person to have enough time to do the jobs to be done well. Enough capacity to spend time on leadership and apprenticeship and coaching of the people who work for them. And enough time for their own personal training and development. Those aren't incremental activities. When these things are treated as in addition to the day job, the day job is treated as fixed, including all the nonsense that's in the day job. So the first thing you can do is really clarify what matters, get real clear on the role, create capacity for what you need them to do in the jobs to be done and to be a better leader and to continue to invest in themselves. And how does that fit in with the objectives that leaders have been looking to achieve during the pandemic specifically, looking to reduce complexity, looking to drive faster decision-making, looking to curtail costs? Getting very clear on the role and the jobs to be done helps with speed and cost. Because as you look at those jobs to be done, you recognize that there are a set of jobs not to be done. That's when organizations you know, are able to move faster because there's clarity. There's not ambiguity as to who has this decision right and this sits on this desk. It's very clear what my job is and who I interact with. And it's when you have that focus that there's also the personal reward that comes with it. No one's really, at the end of the day, super excited to fill out the new cover sheet for their TBS <laughs> report. Like that's... You know, that's, that's, right. that's not what makes somebody go. What somebody's going is creating the new product, delivering this, this amazing new curbside pickup service that we innovated during COVID. That's what people want to do. People don't want to be, you know, running up and down a hierarchy getting sign-offs. And so as you get the role clarity, that helps with speed, that helps with aligning with purpose, and it helps with cost when you identify the jobs not to be done. One would imagine it helps with pandemic fatigue also, right? As leaders are starting to prioritize re-energizing exhausted organizations and trying to combat declining well-being, Bill referred to making time for managers to learn and develop, then that would seem particularly important as we continue on in this crisis and organizations begin to tire. Absolutely. I mean, the the middle managers, or, you know, if you think about it, the leaders of the front line and the leaders of the leaders of the front line are the people that need to be thinking about how do they personally energize and how do they energize, you know, the folks around them. I think one of the biggest things we can do to help people is they treat their job as a ratchet and it only ratchets up. So more and more things get added. Very rarely do we help people set things down. I just think we've made that overwhelming for them. These jobs are almost undoable. And you add on to that the belief that their jobs, their days are always numbered because they're in a middle management role that's always prone to the annual cost cutting. I'm not sure why anyone would view the role as attractive. Yeah, and I think there's something about even as you call it middle management versus the leader of a functional capability or the leader of a site, or the leader of an area. When we call it middle management, I think we denigrate to some degree what the value that those people are doing in leading the assignments of teams in a natural construct, or you know, leading a school, leading a plant, leading the 
um, learning and development capability within HR. Those are all examples of what some people would call, or by some definitions, middle management, but they're way more important than what that middle management term conjures. Guys, thanks so much. That was a great discussion. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. This is great. That was Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. For more, subscribe to us on your favorite audio player or at mckinsey.com. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at mckinseytalkstalent at mckinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you. 